We've been working through this book of James. We've called the series Life Together because I guess very often we, we think about our Christian faith very much in, in the individual. Yes, we are individually saved. We know that, that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are individually saved. But in being saved, we are then knit into, we are part of the body of God's people. We are not individuals in that sense. We are part of being together. In fact, the journey that we see in the, in the whole of the Bible takes us ultimately to a point where the whole of the world will be populated with a people who are one in Jesus. That's the, that's the journey that God's word is taking us. And so we're, we're looking and we're anticipating that. And in some sense, we are, if you like, we are representing that day now, imperfectly, not completely, with all of our messed up experiences. But our objective is to seek to display at least a part of that until the day that Jesus returns. I'm just trying to concentrate. I've got lots of people giving me really strange looks. Am I kind of, am I echoing a bit? Yeah, right, okay. Yeah, I am. I'll try not to. I've really tried. I'll, I'll stop echoing, Paul. Come on. We'll keep going. And at some point I might stop. We're coming to this little section in the book of James, which starts to ask some really interesting questions. It starts to address the issue of faith. Faith is an incredibly contemporary issue. Even in this past week, we see uh, Baroness Wasi has said that the, the British country should be far more confident in our Christian heritage. We should be far more confident in, in a Christian heritage which has really transformed the whole of Western thinking. Uh, a Christian heritage which has informed changes in legislation, which has abolished various terrible activities. You know, it is a, rooted in Christian thinking. The abolition of the slave trade, it is rooted in Christian thinking. Uh, the um, rethinking of the whole of the judicial system, ultimately the prison system. There has been masses that has gone on. And so the idea of faith and how faith works itself out in our society today is really still a hot-button issue. But what we see displayed in this little section of the book of James is that if we are thinking about the idea of faith on the scale of uh, living it out in, in a good way for the sake of society... Uh, on, the, on the one hand, that is not a bad thing. On the other hand, it is a million miles away from the kind of faith that we see displayed here in this section. Gen, uh, James chapter, 14, uh, chapter 2 verse 14 says this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith Save him. <laughs> that's, a that's kind of like a time bomb at the end of that sentence. The idea, can such faith save him? The idea that 
faith is something which is the difference between, between being saved and lost is a massive concept. It's, it's a huge idea, isn't it? The idea that we're not talking about simply how we ought to live. We're talking about the issue of faith in, with eternal consequences. Something which matters into eternity. Uh, there's that famous scene in Gladiator where Maximus says, what we do in this life echoes into eternity. What we do in this life echoes into eternity. In lots of ways, that line could be right over this verse. Because what James is saying is, a faith which is not expressed in what we do is no faith at all. In terms of a faith which is able to save us. A faith which is not displayed in what we do is not a faith which has eternal hope as its mark. So I want to ask the question, for us today, for each one of us here uh, this afternoon, is the faith that we claim, if we claim to have a faith, is it a faith which is going to save us? Because that's what is presented. It's, it's lightning stuff. It, it's kind of huge. <laughs> I can't express how important this is. Eternal significance, eternal life, eternal abandonment by the living God is at stake on the basis of the faith that we are working through here. It has eternal consequences. In a sense, where we are today, the fact that faith as an idea, faith as a way of living, has been so rejected, it can actually be a good thing. Because when we're talking about faith, we're talking about faith which is so different to what we think about intuitively, instinctively, because of the society around us. We're talking about something which is life-changing. Now this particular verse, or this little section actually, down through the history of the church has been a real challenge. This has been a real problem for many Bible thinkers. So we're going to just spend a, just a couple of minutes thinking about some of that. Let me give you another verse in the Bible. It's found in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 and 9. It says this, For it is by grace... You have been saved. It is by grace that you've been saved. Through faith. So at the moment, we're still on board with this verse, aren't we? It sounds like we're still on board with this verse because it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, so we're still okay. It is a gift of God. That's still all right. Not by works so that no one can boast. Ah, that sounds, doesn't it, like a contradiction. In fact, there are many scholars who have, been, who have claimed to be um, scholars of the Bible who have looked at this and said, 
those two things cannot sit together. Therefore, the Bible is inconsistent. Therefore, I will suggest to you that you do not consider it, therefore, to be the solid, reliable, inerrant word of God because it has inconsistencies in it. And it looks like it's inconsistent, doesn't it? So we really need, we really need to work out what's going on here. Because it sounds like in one part of the Bible it's saying it's not of works, and now it's saying that it is works. Let me put it like this. Imagine getting onto an aeroplane, and you know the, um, the captain's announcement as he introduces himself, and uh, he says to the, um, the occupants of the, of the cabin, all of us, us that are about to fly, um, I just want to inform you today we have a choice. Uh, and you're, you're anticipating the choice of menu. And he actually says you have a choice of which wing we want to take with us. Uh, do you want to take the right wing or do you want to take the left wing? We have a choice which wing we fly with today. I can imagine that there would be some consternation amongst the passengers trying to decide. Some, some people might try to argue that one wing is better than the other. Um, if there were people who were arguing in that way, I'd be getting off the plane. Because actually we can't do with one or the other, can we? We absolutely need both. We need a faith which is a gift of God. We need that. Because otherwise it's dependent on us. It's dependent on what we do. And I know myself, and I know that I cannot keep it up. I cannot keep going. I cannot maintain the demands that God places on me for me to maintain a faith. We prayed that just a few minutes ago, where we said, Lord, please keep hold of me, because I cannot keep hold of you. I do not have a faith to sustain me right the way through to the end of my life. I need a faith which is a gift of God, which does not depend on my works. I need that. But at the same time, we need a faith which is expressed in what we do. Otherwise, it is empty words. And that's the diff. Do you see where there are two wings of the one plane? We need to fly with the reliability and the confidence and the hope that it's not what I do. But we also need to know that we are flying on the wing that says that my faith is being seen. Otherwise, I don't know whether it exists. (laughs) I don't know whether it's really there. It needs to be a faith which is lived out. And that's what James is arguing here. He's not saying that faith it is, is all about what we do. He's saying that faith needs to be visible. Otherwise, it's just lip service to the ideal. And I would suggest that the history of a social idea of Christianity is lip service as opposed to true faith in many cases. And that's why it's personal. That's why it's 
down to that personal experience and that knowledge that things are being changed and worked out in my life so that I am living a life of faith and not just talking a life of faith. So salvation, being saved, which is the root of this issue here, can such faith save them? Being saved is rooted in receiving a gift from God, which is faith, and then seeing it worked out in real life. Now James argues this by saying what kind of faith saves us? The first thing is that it's something that is worked out. It's something that is changing in me. I'm, I'm living differently. Now, I, we just said a few minutes ago that I haven't got the strength to live differently. And, and again, we've got this seeming paradox. God is saying that, in, this, in his word here, that faith is something that is lived out. And yet, I'm saying that I know that I haven't got the strength to live it out. Here's some great news. Jesus says that if you know the Father, if you've come into faith in the Father through me, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, if that relationship exists, it, be, it is because we have been revealed to you. There's a, in different ways he describes it is the intervention of God. So it takes for God to reveal himself to us. I know that there are many folks over this past 18 months who have begun to realize, begun to come to terms with the fact that God is revealing himself to them. Conversations that have gone on that are mind-blowing. Things that are happening that are so incredible which is not down to individual people, but rather is that intervention of God in their lives. That is God speaking. Now listen to what Jesus also says. He also goes on to say, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He says, you come to me. In other words, he says, you can come to me and you can ask for exactly what you think you can't do yourself. He says it another way by saying, would, would a good father hold back good things for his children if they ask? If he asked for bread, if, he, if your son was hungry and he asked for some bread, would you give him a stone? Of course not. Because God is a loving God who responds when we ask, therefore, if we're sat thinking, if it's only a gift of God, do I have to just sit back and wait for that gift to hit me? No. Claim the gift. Claim the gift. You've seen it often enough. Come and claim your free gift. It's, it's portrayed everywhere in the media, isn't it? Come and claim your free gift. It's a free gift. There's no strings attached, but you've got to come and ask for it. And Jesus says to you, come and ask for it. I'll not hold it back. So if you're sat there thinking, I, I, I understand that it's a gift and, and therefore I, what do I do? Ask for it. It's simple. Ask 
to the gift that you will be able to receive a faith that you can't generate inside yourself, that you can't build up. What does this faith look faith looks like? <laughs> what does this faith look like? Firstly, James actually gives us three examples. Firstly, he says, faith is a faith which exhibits grace. It's grace lived out. Look at the example that he gives. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about the physical need, what good is it? James is actually calling here for a radical shift. We, we are so, in 21st century Christian thinking, which has been, which we've now had the impact of Christianity in this country for a thousand or so years, the idea of, of social care for the poor is just written into us. It's part of what we are. We're just used to it. So we, we see the care for the poor as a natural thing. But for the first hearers of this, this would have been quite surprising. Because actually, being poverty stricken was considered to be a mark of God's judgment. It would have been considered to be a mark. So the poor would have been considered to be under the judgment of God. And James is saying, now those who in the past <laughs> you have considered to be under the judgment of God, the exceptions that we see pretty much rolled out in detail in the Old Testament, we see care for widows and we see care for, for the uh, fatherless. Very often we see that, that poverty is, in fact, some of, the, some of the folks that were around the time when Jesus was ministering went up to him and said, look, look at the state of this man. Look at the physical condition that he is in. Is it him who sinned or is it his parents? Because there must be some kind of sin in that situation for him to be in such a mess. And James is saying, now, you treat the one who is poverty stricken by pouring out grace upon them. By giving abundantly. It's no good saying, oh, I'm going to pray for you. How does that work out for us today? Because this is really about living to life together, isn't it? This is life together. Somebody comes along to you, because generally speaking, we are not in the situation of absolute poverty. We, we do not have situations where people are literally not eating, generally speaking. Somebody comes to you and says, I, I am just, I don't know where to turn. I, I am at my wit's end. I cannot deal with all of these emotional issues in my life. I am, I am broken. And you say, you weigh up in exactly the same way as James is challenging his first hearers. Okay. Somebody's come to me and said that they're poor, they need food, and they need clothing. That is going to cost me to give to them. And somebody comes up to you today and says, I am emotionally 
however they describe it, however they open up, I am emotionally at my wit's end. That is going to cost you. It's going to cost you to get involved. It's going to cost you to give something of yourself. It's going to cost you to open up and to let go of your precious resources of emotional energy, of time, of all of those aspects which we treasure so dearly in our busy world. They're the, they're the commodities which we hold valuable, which are not the same commodities as the day of James. The poor today are the ones who are broken in heart. The poor today, generally speaking, in our society, certainly in our church, are the ones who are broken in, in, in their inner being. And James says right now, one of the ways that faith is expressed is because you are able to give in that situation. Why? Why is that an expression of faith? Because we know that that's exactly where I am in relation to God. I, I am not better. That's the issue for the first hearers. I am not better because I'm rich and they're poor. I am not better because I'm emotionally more stable than the person alongside me. In relation to the stability of God, we are both arm in arm. That's the issue. I've known astounding grace. That's how we see it. I've known the astounding grace of God giving to me in abundance. I've received his grace upon grace. Therefore, my faith responds in wanting to give out in grace to those who are around, who are in need. That's life together. That's faith which is lived out. You know, it's really easy to, to give with resources that don't hurt us much. Fascinating looking at the, uh, listening over Christmas, at the, at the pleas really for many, from many um, agencies saying please don't focus on feeding the homeless over Christmas. It is, it's just masses is given at that point in time. Please don't focus on that. They actually say please don't do it. Some of the agencies are saying, please don't do it. But isn't it easy to give at that particular point in time? In our abundance, it doesn't actually hurt much. And we actually get a good feeling because we've given. And real giving, real grace, costs. It really costs. We could say, the grace that we have received cost God in Jesus. The great thing is that he has a boundless treasure trove to give. Therefore he can give and he can give and he can give and he can give and he can give to every one of you and to me uh, as more than we could ever imagine and his treasure store is not diminished one jot. He can support us and strengthen us and help us emotionally, psychologically, physically. In the realities of the tragedies of life, he can keep us and hold us 
every one of us and he is not diminished that's one of the great things about God but we're called in this particular example to live our faith out by giving one of the things that James warns us is that it's not about belief it's not about believing in God it's easy to believe in God he says he says, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. It's going to be worked out. It's going to be visible. It's going to be seen. You believe that there is one God? Good. Well, that's a great thing to believe that there's one God. One God in three persons. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. It's great to believe that. And then he just hits you between the eyes by saying, don't forget that the demons believe in that God. There is no doubt that they believe in that God. We see that given an example when Jesus is confronting demonic evil forces and they are terrified of him. They know who he is before Legion even has an idea of who Jesus is. The demonic forces know who Jesus is. They believe there's one God, but it doesn't mean that they've got faith. It doesn't mean that they've got faith. Do not live a life which says, I believe in Jesus. And that's okay. It's not faith. Believing in Jesus is absolutely essential to faith. But it's not the end point. It's the beginning. It's where it starts. James said, look, be, be warned. Because there's a spiritual dimension that can get to the point of believing... But it's not a spiritual dimension that has faith in this Jesus. So it's grace lived out. The second thing it is, is it's trust lived out. Trust in God. The example that we have is from uh, the life of Abraham. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were worked together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that, said, that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. Isn't that an incredible thing? Imagine being called God's friend. An amazing description. And it says that Abraham believed. In fact, that's a quote that we find um, from um, Genesis chapter 12 Genesis chapter 12 it says that right at the very beginning it says the great thing about Abraham what was counted to him as righteousness is that he believed he believed when God said from your lineage from the, from the life uh, that I will give you through your wife Sarah who was a barren woman I will create a great nation and Abraham believed that he believed God when God said that but that was not an empty set of words. That's the point that James is making. He believed it, but how did he express his trust in God? Because remarkably, Sarah as an old woman ends up having a child, Isaac. Remarkably, miraculously, God fulfills what seemed impossible. And then God turns to Abraham and says the unthinkable. 
He turns to him and he says, right, now that you have, um, now that I have given you this son, now that I have done exactly what I said I would do, now what I want you to do is I want you to take him and sacrifice him. So he has believed in God, and now God says, go and kill him. Take him up, literally, onto a mountain, tie this 25-year-old young man, tie him up with rope, get him, because Abraham is an old man now, and, and Isaac is a young, strong man, So together the two of you go up onto the mountain, tie him up, lie him down on the altar, raise a knife and kill him. And we see in Genesis chapter 22 that that is exactly what Abraham and Isaac do. Right up to the point where Abraham raises the knife and is about to bring it down into the body of Isaac and sacrifice his son. And at that moment God speaks and says, I will provide a substitute through a ram. Now that is a wonderful picture, isn't it? Any, any of us who have been thinking about the Bible message for any length of time will realize that way back then, God is saying, I will allow your son to live by providing a sacrifice. Doesn't that sound very much like Jesus? That's great news, but James is saying that Abraham lived a life of faith which was expressing trust. Hebrews puts it like this, chapter 11, says this, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. That, for me, it, I find that verse one of the most remarkable verses in the whole of the Bible. That's what faith, trusting in God, looks like. Abraham, go and kill your son. <laughs> okay? You've said that he is going to be the hope for the future. I believe that. And now you've said, kill him. Which one do I let go of? Abraham says, neither. That's the amazing thing. He does the wings on the plane idea and says, I can't let go of either of them. I can't let go of the fact that God is saying that hope is found in Isaac. And I can't let go of the fact that God is saying, now kill him. I've got to hold on to both of those. How can this possibly work out? (laughs) Ping. It goes off in his mind by the power of God working in him, by the way. It goes off in his mind where Abraham suddenly realizes the only way that this can work out is for God to raise him from the dead. That's what it says in Hebrews. As Abraham and Isaac are walking up that mountain, as Abraham is raising the knife and is about to bring it down into the body of his son, he is thinking God is going to raise him up. That's astounding faith. Now what about when God calls us to do something which seems impossible? 
What about when God calls us to do something which seems for us as though it is so outside of anything that we feel comfortable doing and it seems as though he's calling me to live now a pathway which I don't feel able. He said he's going to keep a hold of me. He said he's going to keep a hold of me. And now he's saying, I want you to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Let's put it like that. I want you, you are now called to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Psalm 23. God said he's going to keep hold of me. Which one am I going to let go of? The fact that he's going to keep hold of me or the fact that he's saying now walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I'm not going to let go of either. Because he will be with me. His rod and his staff, they will comfort me. That is faith lived out. It's saying I trust in God. In the real life experiences that I am going through. I continue to believe that he has said that he will never let go of me. I continue to believe that he said he will never leave me or forsake me. The final example is the prostitute Rahab. So we've had grace lived out, we've had trust lived out, and now we have hope lived out. Hope lived out. The spies come into Jericho. And they communicate that God's people are going to take over this impregnable city. It is, in, in the ancient world, the city of Jericho would have seemed impregnable. Massive walls. It was, if you like, it was the, the equivalent of the most highly developed defense system that we could possibly imagine today. It was impregnable in the ancient world, was the city of Jericho. And the spies come in and they say to Rahab, this city is going to be destroyed, but if you place your trust in our God, you will be saved. That's, the, that's at the heart of the story. And Rahab places her hope for the future. She places her hope for the future in God. And she says, I will not trust this impregnable environment in which I currently live. My hope is in the future, in the God that has been described to me by these spies who've come in. Now, now Rahab is not the kind of person that you would expect God to deal with. Rahab is not the kind of person that you immediately think, spies going into the land, um, let's find somebody who is going to be who's going to be sensitive and who's going to be attuned to the idea of the message of this God. I know, let's choose a prostitute. That is not what we would think, is it? Isn't it amazing that God turns over our thinking and brings the most unexpected people into faith in him? Rahab the prostitute has hope in the future in the God of the spies. And therefore she says... I'm going to protect them. I'm going to put my life at risk because I believe that my future hope is not in this city. That sounds remarkably like uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Can I encourage you, if you haven't read it, 
Read Pilgrim's Progress. If you're going to struggle with the Old English uh, language, then I'm going to encourage you to read Little Christian's Pilgrimage, uh, which is the children's version, which tells the whole story from a children's point of view. It is an astounding story. It's about Christian, who is um, living in the city of destruction, where there is a continuous message saying, this city is going to be destroyed. Don't place your hope in the now. Make a journey to the celestial city, the city of eternal hope, the city of the king. And that's the journey that Pilgrim makes. And Rahab does exactly the same in her thinking. She says, my hope is in the God of the future. That's faith lived out. If you are living or if I am living in this world and placing all of my hope in the now, and terrified if some of the now it deteriorates, or some of the now is taken away, or some of the now is no longer there for me. If we are placing all our hope in the now and then it disappears, we are not living a life of faith with hope in the future. Because Rahab's message is, don't trust the now, it's going to get destroyed. Trust the future. Trust the hope of eternal life. Trust the hope of an eternal kingdom, an eternal city, where Jesus the King will be present. So we've got three aspects of living out a true faith, which I would suggest a life which is pouring out grace, grace lived out, a life which is trust lived out, a life which is hope lived out is astoundingly different to the idea of resurrecting a Christian identity for our country. It is just astoundingly different. It is so deep and so life transforming that we are called to live like that. And we can't do it. So ask God. To give us the gift to be able to.